Hello, and welcome to the Buffy and the Art of Story podcast. Today, we'll be talking about Checkpoint, Season 5, Episode 12, where the Watcher's Council refuses to help Buffy defeat Glory unless she endures and succeeds at their rigorous testing process. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist, story coach, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. As to Checkpoint, along with the episode recap, I'll focus on the difficulty spotting key major plot turns in Checkpoint and what that does to the episode's standalone story, character and dialogue choices that tell the audience so much about the Watcher's Council and the theme of power, how the writers use minor conflict to reveal exposition and set up later scenes, and how Checkpoint turns the season five story arc, which I'll talk about mainly in the foreshadowing and spoiler section. Speaking of spoilers, there are none until we reach the foreshadowing part of this podcast episode, and I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Checkpoint aired the first time on January 23rd, 2001. It was directed by Nick Mark and written by Doug Petrie and Jane Espenson. The opening conflict here, which is the conflict meant to draw the audience immediately into the story, relates directly to the main plot about the Watcher's Council. It also hints at the season arc about Dawn. In the living room, Buffy apologizes to her friends and Giles as she puts away takeout paper cups and plates. Buffy says, sorry, mom's still not 100%, and I guess I haven't really been taking up the slack. This minor conflict fills us in on Joyce's illness, and it sets the stage for where Buffy is emotionally and how she feels she has to handle everything. Her friends tell her it's fine. Buffy picks up an olive green pullover sweater and stares at it. And Xander, noticing, says, that must have belonged to, uh, aren't we supposed to have a meeting? This subtle reference to Riley leaving adds to the tension. Buffy folds the sweater and sets it aside. Giles tells them all that the Watcher's Council found information that might help them out but he doesn't know for sure that it's about glory. They'll find out when the council arrives. This alarms Buffy. Tara asks, what's so bad about them coming here? Aren't they the good guys? I mean, watchers. They're just like other Gileses, right? And Buffy says, yeah, they're scary and horrible. Giles says they can be hard-nosed, but their agenda is the same as that of Buffy. They want to save the world and kill Demons. Anya chimes in, kill the current demons, right? Current demons. Having Tara ask the question is also a great way to get out a bit of exposition along with Buffy's uh, conflict over the council coming because Tara is a newer character. She wasn't around when Giles and Buffy were still working for the council. Giles tells Buffy the council is probably already on the way. Quentin Travers is heading up a delegation 
investigation. And Buffy says, they put me through that test and almost killed me. And then when I was Faith, they almost killed me again. Honestly, I really can't handle almost being killed right now. This conflict between Buffy and Giles, though Giles can't really do anything about this, does provide a good reason that Buffy is reiterating what happened in previous episodes in Helpless when they tested her when she turned 18 and when she and Faith had the body switch episode. Now we touch on Buffy's concerns about Dawn also through conflict because Willow says maybe it will be better this time and Buffy says it's a delicate time. She has to take care of Dawn. Xander responds, well, that's not new. She's always taken care of Dawn. Buffy and Giles exchange a look. And Buffy says she knows that, but there's glory. And as she goes on, the camera pans to the stairwell. Dawn in pajamas has come downstairs and she pauses, eavesdropping. But Joyce appears behind her and asks what she's doing. Buffy calls out to ask if Dawn's listening. Dawn, exasperated, says she was going to get a snack. She can get a snack if she wants. But she does go back upstairs. And Buffy says to Giles, she was listening. And Willow says, does it matter? I mean, is she really going to set the junior high school buzzing with, ooh, there's a delegation a-coming? So now we know, even if we haven't watched previous episodes, that there's something Giles and Buffy both know about Dawn that the others do not know because they are puzzled why this concerns Buffy so much. Buffy now tries to act like it's no big deal, and Giles says that if the council knows something, maybe it will help them get a grip on what they're dealing with. As to Glory, right now they're all a bit lost. At three minutes, ten seconds in... The scene cuts to Glory. She's sitting against a wall. She's sweaty. She looks confused and exhausted. The minions bring her a mail carrier. They have to drag her over to him, and she puts her hands into his head, and bright lights come out as she draws out his brain or mental energy. Now Glory feels great. The mail carrier is confused and disoriented and wanders away, talking about everyone looking at him and saying, my head, my head. Glory tells the minions not to cut it so close next time. And the minion tells her the signs of alignment are moving faster than expected. She must act quickly to use the key. Glory's happy it's almost time to go. Sunnydale has too many demons and not enough retail outlets. She also thinks Mousy, the vampire slayer, knows where her key is. The minion reminds her there's not much time, but Glory's not worried. She says, if that girl's the only thing between me and my key, I don't need much time. At 5 minutes, 20 seconds, we go to the credits. So we are past 10% of the episode, and usually by now we would see the story spark or inciting incident. In Buffy episodes or almost any work of fiction, that's where that plot point happens, and it is the event or incident that gets the main plot rolling. It has happened a bit later in Buffy episodes in seasons four and five, 
as the show spends more time covering season arcs. So just having it a bit late isn't necessarily problematic, but here it creates some confusion. And I think it's part of why this episode felt off to me when I watched the first time and even on some re-watching. Two things happened in the teaser, two main things. We found out the council was coming to Sunnydale, which distressed Buffy. And we found out that Glory thinks Buffy has the key and doesn't have much more time to prepare for whatever she's doing. Because that second part is what's happening around the 10% mark, it strongly suggests that the main plot here is going to be about Glory needing to get the key from Buffy soon. However, that is not the main plot, and it's not even a subplot but rather a small movement in the season arc that happens in this episode. We return from the credits at 6 minutes, 19 seconds in at the Magic Box. The original script for the episode is included on the DVD, and it does list this as the start of Act 1. Everything before was the teaser. Quentin Travers enters the magic shop. He takes a book away from a customer that Giles was talking to. A whole group of watchers enters with Quentin. He declines to introduce them. He wants to catch up with Giles first. And then he never does introduce these people, which is a nice device to avoid throwing a lot of names at the audience that they don't need to know, but it also says a lot about the council. They are not faceless because we see them, but they're not individuals. They are this sort of army of watchers behind Quentin. Giles starts telling Quentin about the shop, and he says, I think I can see what you've been up to. Giles rushes to say that he limits his time in the shop. Most of it is spent training with Buffy and he talks about the back room. As he's speaking, a dark-haired man walks right around the counter behind Anya and grabs something off the shelf. Quentin says he's heard about that back training room. Perhaps that would be a good place for Giles to keep the dangerous things, clearly implying that what the dark-haired watcher took was dangerous. Then one of the two women watchers hands Quentin another much larger statue that she says was stolen and also has the power to melt human eyeballs. And Giles says, in that case, I severely underpriced it. This woman watcher is named in the script as Lydia, but I listened and I don't think we ever hear her name. We only hear the names of two male watchers. At 8 minutes 38 seconds, Quentin tells him, don't worry, all of this is just for the duration of the review. And a male watcher announces to the customers that the shop is now closed. So this is the actual inciting incident or story spark. This is the first time that Giles has heard the council is not here just to give information, but to conduct some kind of review. But that moment is more or less lost. 
in uh, the upset of Giles and Anya over the store closing and over the whole stress of the watchers being there at all and Quentin criticizing Giles. Anya calls after the customers to please come back and bring their money. But as soon as she hears one of the watchers mention the council, she turns to leave. Quentin calls Anya back and asks if she works there. In the background, the other of the two women watchers makes tea. Anya says, yes, I do. Ever since I moved here from southeastern Indiana, where I was raised by both a mother and a father. And she will do this more than once, this over-volunteering of information, which is a great sign that someone is lying and is nervous. Giles tells Anya she doesn't need to answer and asks Quentin what this review is. He also says to the group of watchers, you all stand around and look somber. Good job. Quentin says Giles used to respect them, and Giles points out they used to pay him. The firing wasn't his idea. More great use of conflict to let the audience know the backstory between the council and Giles, and to set up the end of the episode where Buffy gets Giles reinstated. Quentin says the council discovered vital information about Glory, but they won't hand it over until they are convinced that Giles and the Slayer are prepared for it. Giles is appalled they plan to test Buffy again. Quentin says it's not a test, it's a check of her methods. Giles tells him that the council can trust Buffy. She's made so much progress and she's very focused. The scene cuts to Buffy yawning as an older male professor with white hair and a white beard lectures. This is 10 minutes, 28 seconds in. So around here, I start looking for what I think of as the one quarter twist. It is the first major plot turn in any story, and it typically comes from outside the protagonist, spins the story in a new direction, and sometimes raises the stakes. It often comes a quarter way through, thus my name for it, but sometimes more like a third of the way through. Here, it is not easy to spot what it is, though we do have a shift to Buffy's experience. She taps and then drops her pencil as the professor lectures about Rasputin. But then he says something about how it was nearly impossible to kill Rasputin. And under her breath, Buffy says, nearly impossible. And the professor hears her and calls on her. She stands. She goes through all the ways different foes tried to kill Rasputin and couldn't. And points out that there were sightings of him hundreds of years later multiple sightings. When the professor tells her there's a near consensus about when Rasputin died, Buffy says there was a near consensus about Columbus discovering America, too. The professor is not happy. She's challenging him, and Buffy starts hedging and saying things like, well, she was only saying, wouldn't it be interesting to consider other theories and possibilities? That's all. So this, along with Quentin's sarcastic comments in the previous scene with 
Giles are examples of the ways that people speak to undermine others, particularly people in power who feel threatened. And it is a stereotypically male way of speaking. And Buffy initially is fairly strong in her comments, but then is intimidated and uses what uh, often women use, which is things like, I'm just saying this, that's all, I'm only saying, to indicate, hey, I am not strongly challenging your authority, but I want to raise this in a non-threatening way, which doesn't work anyway because the professor is just as awful. It isn't only a male-female dynamic, but that is where we see it a lot, and I think it is definitely meant to be seen that way here because The Watcher's Council has so many men in it, only two women, both of whom are unnamed, where two of the male Watchers plus Quentin are named. And this professor, this older male professor, is the first person Buffy runs up against who uses this approach with her. The professor tells Buffy maybe she'd like to teach Speculation 101, perhaps, or Intro to Flights of Fancy. He tells her that the rest of them are there to learn. They want to know what actually happened. It's called studying history. And he ends by calling her Professor. Buffy sinks into her chair. Going back to the question of where is the one-quarter turn, it could be this entire incident with the professor because this is the first time in the story someone belittles her and tries to make her feel small and she is directly aware of it. Or the turn could be the next moment where Buffy becomes aware how angry she is about this and expresses it, where in class at the end, she seemed to be more in touch with feeling humiliated. At 12 minutes, 25 seconds in, Buffy raves about the professor as she fights a vampire. He fights back a bit confused why she's talking about a professor. And to some extent, the raving may distract Buffy from the point of the fight. Spike jumps in and kills the vampire, much to Buffy's dismay. She asks why he did it. He tells her not for the money, if that's what she's thinking. Her heartfelt gratitude is enough. Buffy's anything but grateful. Spike insists he saved her life and she needed him. She tells him she never needs him. Uh, A nice setting up of a later moment when she will in fact need Spike. Spike comments maybe she doesn't like who rescued her. She wanted it to be her boyfriend. Oh, wait, but he laughed. He then tags along as Buffy stalks out of the graveyard and we get more great exposition through conflict because Buffy says she doesn't need a boyfriend and Spike says don't need or can't keep. He goes on taunting her about making notches on the headboard but then the guys get up and leave. A nice reference back to Parker in season four and remember Spike was there to taunt her about Parker and also linked it to Angel having sex with her once and leaving her. Spike speculates about why Riley left. Does Buffy push men away or is she too clingy? Or maybe it's premature aging due to slaying. And he ends with, or maybe you just don't hold their interest. 
it is another example of someone squelching Buffy, making her feel bad and small, though in a different way than the professor did. At 14 minutes, 24 seconds in, a minion confronts Ben at the hospital. Glory has a message for him. She wants Ben to tell the minion everything about the Slayer. Ben has no idea who the Slayer is until the minion tells him she's, quote, short, symmetrical hair on top, buffy something, end quote. Ben won't help, and he has a message for Glory, and the scene cuts. We go to Giles in the magic shop. He tells Quentin that Buffy has a hybrid fighting style. Buffy enters, sees Quentin, and turns around trying to leave, saying it is not her day. But Quentin wants a training demonstration. The dark-haired watcher, who we learn is named Nigel, explains that they'll be observing her training and fighting, and they'll be talking to her friends, which does not make her happy. But Quentin says it's because she is taking civilians out on patrol. And he reminds her how this whole process works. The council fights evil, the slayer is their instrument, and he says the council remains the slayer's change. And Giles says that's a very comforting, bloodless way of thinking about it, isn't it? But Quentin tells Giles he's talking to Buffy and goes on, because I think she's understanding me. Thank you so much for joining the podcast again after the mid-season break. It was a great break. I took my first trip out of the country since before COVID and seeing so much artwork and getting outside, interacting with new people, hearing a different language. All of that not only helped me relax, but I returned full of all kinds of ideas for my fiction. Also, during the break, I did do a little bit of work. I added a benefit for patrons who support the podcast on Patreon. If you would like to listen to Buffy and the Art of Story over the weekend instead of on Mondays or Tuesdays, for a little as a dollar a month on Patreon, you can get each episode early by Saturday morning. You'll also get access to all the bonus content. Most recently, the full conversation between me and Roberta Lip, co-host of the They Coined It podcast, about Riley leaving, Dawn's introduction in the show, Buffy's choices in the gift, and more. And before that, I recorded themes of life and death and being human in season five. And the newest episode I'll be recording later today is comparing the humor in season two's band candy to the humor in season five's triangle. If you would like to support the show on Patreon, go to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Lisa M. Lily, L-I-S-A, Emerson Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. If you'd like to help support the podcast but can't make a monthly commitment now or don't want to, especially in these uncertain times, you can also make a one-time contribution at 
buymeacoffee.com slash Lisa M. Lilly, or tell a friend about the podcast or the book editions of Buffy and the Art of Story, or post or share about them on social media. And thank you to everyone who supports this show, whether it's on Patreon, buy me a coffee, by sharing, or simply by listening every episode. I really appreciate it and it helps me keep going even when the rest of life gets stressful. Quentin tells Buffy that Glory is powerful and the council can help her if she passes their review. But if she fails for incompetence or because she resists their recommendations, they will not help. And Quentin ups the stakes. He says if she doesn't cooperate, they can shut down the magic box. Buffy says, you can't do that. You don't have that kind of power. Quentin assures her he does, and he will arrange for Giles to be deported if she resists. And we cut to a commercial. In the script on the DVD, this is the end of Act 1. When I have been able to see the scripts, often the end of Act 1 corresponds with that first major plot turn I talked about. Typically, it happens a quarter to a third of the way through. So this is a bit late for a typical Act 1 to end in a four-act script which this one is. Act two begins at 18 minutes, six seconds in. The minion who had talked to Ben is now all beat up, and he tells Glory that the beating was a message from Ben, who is not going to help. Glory can't believe Ben refused. All he has to do is turn over that, quote, tiny squirmy slayer girl, close quote. She goes on that Ben drives her insane and says, you know what I mean? And the minion says, he drives you insane? She hugs him and goes on about how he's the only one who understands, and it's probably because she hasn't sucked his brain out yet. If she could just get her hands on Ben, and she is gesturing as if she is about to squeeze the minion's head, but instead she steps back and says, you know... This moves the story arc about Glory getting the key slightly, but it doesn't move the episode story forward. Part of the pacing issues with this episode are that so much happens in the early part of the episode that it delays us getting to those major plot turns. But because Glory is going to confront Buffy later, the writers obviously wanted this to happen early. At 19 minutes, 39 seconds in, Buffy and Giles are alone at the magic box. It's late. He is raving about the council and says it's about who has the power. And Buffy, who is slumping over the table, says, I'm guessing they do. Big power outage in Buffy County. Buffy asks if they can really deport Giles, and he says, yes, that what the council is really good at is bureaucracy. They can kill you with a strike of a pen. And he's so angry that as he's cleaning his glasses, he accidentally breaks them. Buffy is worried about getting through the review, not the physical part, but her decisions. Twice she was 
in slaying distance of glory and glory kicked her ass. Also, Buffy hasn't been able to figure out anything about glory and can't even figure out if she should tell anyone other than Giles about the key. And she says, they're going to expect me to be the slayer and know stuff, end quote. Giles tells her the outrage is the council, not her, but she says no one else will be asked the questions they will ask her, and no one else can protect Dawn or has to defeat Glory. Giles says it's humiliating that they're using him against Buffy, and at 21 minutes, 52 seconds in, she says it's also smart. It's the perfect thing because she can't lose him. This is at about 22 minutes in. The episodes run 42 to 43 minutes, so this is a little bit past the middle. Usually in Buffy, in almost all episodes, and in almost any movie you watch or novel you read, at the midpoint, you will see one of two things or both happening. The protagonist making a major commitment, throwing caution to the wind, going all in on the quest, or suffering a major reversal. And another reason this episode on first watch lacked power for me was because there isn't a very strong midpoint here. Yes, it is something of a reversal that they're using Giles against her, but it doesn't feel that much stronger than her overall need for information about Glory. Likewise, this doesn't feel like a major commitment here. It's pretty clear from Buffy's body language alone that she already feels defeated and that she'll go along with the review because she wants to protect Glory. So certainly using Giles as leverage adds to that, but it doesn't feel all that major, and Buffy will suffer a very clear major reversal later on in the episode. At 22 minutes, three seconds in, the scene cuts to Anya. She states her full name and age and says she was born on the 4th of July, and didn't she hear jokes about that her whole life? Quote, who's our little patriot, they'd say, when I was younger and therefore smaller and shorter than I am now. End quote. So another example of her over-explaining, because now the watcher clarifies simply how to spell her first name, suggesting that's all he asked for. The scene then cuts to Nigel, that dark-haired male watcher, asking Willow and Tara about their relationship. And Tara says, uh, uh, our relationship? Willow says, we're friends. Tara, good friends, actually. Willow, girlfriends. And Tara says, yes, we're girlfriends. This continues until Willow says they are lesbian gay type lovers, somewhat defiantly expecting some pushback, but the watcher clarifies he meant their relationship with the Slayer. And Tara says, just good friends. Xander explains to Nigel that he, Willow, and Buffy are best friends, playing off the last line of the previous scene, that they patrolled with her for years. 
And he admits he has no special skills or powers, but Anya interjects, except for enthusiasm for killing demons. Xander then talks about combining to become a super Buffy, which happened at the end of season four. These watcher questioning scenes are more examples of the use of language to deliberately undermine the people being questioned, because no matter what these characters say, the watcher will try to make them feel uncomfortable, because now the watcher asks if Buffy often needs that kind of help. Then we cut to Willow, who has obviously been asked the same question, and she rushes to assure the watcher questioning her that no, sometimes they don't help at all. Sometimes they hinder. And Tara says Buffy's fine without them. Sometimes she goes off and does things without even telling. And then Tara says, wait, that's coming out wrong. Willow now tells the watcher she's trying to do a sunshine spell to make it easier for Buffy to slay. Not that Buffy needs anyone to make it easier. And now the Watcher asks Willow and Tara what magical level they are. And Willow says, top level? And they both kind of stutter and stumble until Tara just says, five. Then the Watcher asks if they're registered as witches under the names they gave. So more ways to make them feel uncomfortable. When Anya is asked about the key, she says they know nothing about it. It sounds demony, and she doesn't hold with that demon nonsense. And then she offers the Watcher a muffin she baked herself which he turns down. In the background, as Nigel questions Anya and Xander, the other woman watcher stands, her hands folded, saying nothing. And I think this cannot be an accident. We have this woman never named, never speaks in the background. Xander says Buffy saved him lots of times and, quote, the vampires in this town hate her, close quote. The scene cuts to a group of watchers questioning Spike as they clutch crossbows. The woman watcher the script names as Lydia does get to talk here. She asks Spike about helping Buffy. He says he pitches in when Buffy pays him money, blood from a stray victim, whatever. This will also be key later setting up a request Buffy will make without paying Spike. For now, Spike says Buffy's slipping. Poor thing can't keep a man. She'll be crying on his shoulder any time now. And the woman watcher says, is that what you want? I'd think you'd want to kill her. You've killed slayers before. So more good information coming in through some minor conflict. And we also learn a lot about Spike very quickly, and the fact that he killed other slayers supports Buffy's later decision to ask him to protect Joyce and Dawn. Buffy already knows that, but it signals the audience, yes, Spike is a formidable foe, though we haven't gotten to see him in that role for a while. Spike is flattered. The Watcher heard of him. She admits she wrote her thesis on him. She is clearly a bit of a fan. Now Spike asks how the Slayer is doing, is she okay, getting high marks in all categories, and he seems genuinely concerned for Buffy. Now we get to the scene that has that major reversal I mentioned. Quentin rattles off the skills Buffy will need, like agility, stamina, strength, and at 26 minutes, 16 seconds in, in the training room, he tells Buffy her task is to protect the stuffed dummy when Philip, the other named male watcher, attacks. 
and protect the dummy as if it's precious. But Buffy is blindfolded and she'll need to follow the fighting instructions that Quentin gives her using Japanese names for Aikido and Jiu-Jitsu. Buffy, of course, doesn't know Japanese. Buffy fights pretty well, considering that it takes Giles a moment to translate. He is clearly rusty on this as well. And she does get hit at least once when he doesn't convey the instruction quickly enough. Quentin says, how have you been training her? And Giles says, I trained her to win. At 28 minutes, five seconds in, Buffy says she'll have to do this her way. She ignores the instructions and fights on instinct, still blindfolded. She defeats Philip, but she gets his axe away from him and flings it, and it hits the dummy in the face and sticks there and knocks it over. It also comes pretty close to the watcher standing behind the dummy. The woman watcher, Lydia, clicks her stopwatch and gives the time that it took Buffy to finish. Buffy stutters out that perhaps she could try again. She really wasn't feeling well. Quentin shakes his head. He doesn't need more physical tests. They'll move on to the real review and look at her strategies and plans. And he says, we start at 7 tonight. Give you time to, uh, well, however you prepare. At 28 minutes, Buffy returns home. She looks exhausted as she walks in the door. Glory says, long day, sweetie. And that is the end of Act 2. In this four-act script, the end of Act 2 corresponds really closely with that major reversal where, as part of the test, Buffy kills the dummy. And then Glory appears. I'm not sure why the killing the dummy didn't happen in the actual middle of this episode. It would have given it a lot more momentum. I do love this episode, and Buffy has such a strong realization by the end that I end up feeling like it is one of the best episodes. And yet, if you have that stronger midpoint in the center, I think on first watch, it would have more power. I suspect the reason that isn't done is that the writers wanted to have all that questioning of the friends and Spike before that fight with the dummy. For one thing, we need to set up Spike to make it clear that Buffy has not gone to him before for help, but also how he feels about her, his mixed feelings, and his strength. All of that needs to come out before Glory appears at Buffy's house for reasons we'll see in a moment. And the questioning of the friends really does fit a sequence where we have seen Buffy being undermined, Giles being undermined, and the friends being undermined. And that questioning of the friends would feel pretty unimportant after the fight where Buffy kills the dummy. That might cause the second part of the episode to feel slow. After Glory's appearance, we cut to the commercial. Come back, start Act 3. Glory walks around Buffy's living room, commenting on the cute and quaint furnishings as she does so. Quietly and carefully, Buffy reaches for a fireplace poker, but Glory's in front of her in an instant and tells Buffy to put it down. If Glory wanted to fight, Buffy could tell by, quote, by being dead already. 
unquote. Glory wants the key. She thinks Buffy knows where it is, and that is the only thing keeping Buffy alive. This is another thing that causes a bit of a slow pace in part of this episode. Glory is repeating what she already talked through with her minions. And in the most tightly written episodes, we have almost no instances where characters tell another character the same thing that they have already talked about with someone else. Glory tells Buffy, you may be tiny queen in vampire world, but to me, you're a bug. And she goes on that she could crush the life out of Buffy in a second. As they talk, Dawn comes into the room behind Glory. Glory doesn't seem to notice, and Buffy, with the slightest movement of her head and eyes, signals to Dawn to leave. Dawn tries to tiptoe out, and she's almost gone when Glory calls her back. She wants to know if Dawn knows anything. Buffy insists she doesn't, and this is between Buffy and Glory, and Glory says, no, it's between me and my key. A really nice use of language to show how scary this is for Buffy, how close Glory is to the truth about Dawn being the key, and she is physically close to Dawn. Buffy insists Dawn knows nothing. Dawn is angry and says she knows some stuff. They're always talking about things she's not supposed to hear. She's going to figure it out. She stalks off and Glory says she likes her. She's got spunk. And then she turns to Buffy and says that she will kill Dawn and Buffy's mom and her friends. Either Buffy has the key or she knows where to find it. If she doesn't turn it over, the next time she sees Glory, someone Buffy loves will die bloody. After she leaves, Joyce comes in and asks what that was about, and Buffy tells her to pack a bag. At 32 minutes 27 seconds in, Buffy enters Spike's crypt, waking him up and startling him, and he says, oh, it's the Slayer. For a second there, I was worried. He's surprised to see Dawn and Joyce and says, what's with the family outing? She wants him to protect them. So this is why the scenes with Spike had to happen before Buffy's test with the Watchers, because from there, she went right home and encountered Glory. Spike wants money, but Buffy says she's serious. He has to look after them. He asks why, isn't she feeling 100%? And then he says, they didn't put a chip in your head, did they? She says no, and he says, be funny if they did. And Buffy cuts him off. She needs an answer. He's the only one strong enough. He finally says, all right, and tells Joyce and Dawn to come in. As best I can remember, this is the first time that Spike has just helped Buffy out, not getting paid, not with an angle for himself, not even clearly trying to score points with her. He just agrees to help. This is a major development for the season arc, and it shows how much Buffy trusts him because the chip won't stop Spike from just stepping aside if Glory were to appear and try to kill Dawn or Joyce. He could just let it happen, but Buffy trusts that he won't. After Buffy leaves, Joyce, ever polite, says, I love what you've um, neglected to do with the place. Spike tells them just don't make a lot of noise. He turns on the TV. It's time for passions. Joyce is immediately excited. Does he think Timmy is really dead? And as they talk about passions, Dawn rolls her eyes. A really nice moment between Joyce and Spike reminding us that they have 
always gotten along. Now, we're more than 32 minutes in by this point, and I am looking for a three-quarter turn, the last major plot turn that should grow from the midpoint, take the story in another new direction, and sometimes raise the stakes. And here, as with the midpoint, it's not clear what that turn might be. Whether we look for it three-quarters through or two-thirds through, I don't really see one. Yes, it is a change that Buffy trusts Spike, but that is more significant for the season as a whole than for this particular episode, as we are not going to see Spike again, and we're going to assume that Dawn and Joyce are fine. I do have a couple listener comments to share and a personal update. I got about two-thirds through the first draft of my next QC Davis mystery. I will be rewriting once I finish, but I'm very happy with the first line, and I think I'll keep it. Here it is. It's not every day you meet a man who might have murdered your sister. I also finished the course I mentioned in some of the earlier episodes. So if you have found the breakdown of story structure and character growth in the podcast helpful and want to dive into that for your own novel, you might find the course How to Plot Your Novel from Idea to First Draft helpful. It is an online self-study course with video. You can take it at your own pace. You can even download it so that you'll always have the course from now to the end of time. You can find out more at writingasasecondcareer.com slash plot your novel or follow the link in the show notes or look at writingasasecondcareer.com under the menu item help with your novel. Now for listener comments. This one came in on May 17th while I was on break from Jarrett on Twitter. And this is about listening to fear. That is the one with that alien demon that stalks Joyce and follows her home from the hospital. And Jarrett said, Erg, Ben having mentally ill people killed. And the show treats it like it's nothing almost acceptable. And this is a really good point, And I did not address it in the episode. There are some events or subjects that if you include them in your story, they are so important and have so much emotional significance that the story really needs to be about that event, or at least a strong subplot needs to deal with it. Other topics like that are death. In Buffy, that wouldn't mean any death because we see a lot of death there, but death of a key character would be one of those. Death by suicide would be another. And certainly killing mentally ill people is one of those subjects. Some of the people, their psychiatric issues were caused by glory. Some were not, but regardless As Jaren says, it is awful that the show treats that as an aside. And from a sheer storytelling perspective, that's not great because the audience starts thinking about that rather than the main plot or the subplot. Also, it can be very emotionally difficult for your readers and contribute 
to the public's view of either certain ways that we tend to categorize people or how we see certain types of illnesses or issues, in this case, psychiatric or mental health issues. Around 2012, I attended a science fiction and fantasy writing conference where there was a panel on the use of mental illness as a plot device and all the harms that that can cause when it is treated either in kind of a cavalier way or in a way that might undermine the audience's understanding of mental health issues or treatment. I hope that we have made some progress since then. The Buffy episodes were back in the late 90s and early 2000s. I like to think that these days the writers would not treat these deaths in an offhanded way, but we have a long way to go. And so thank you, Jarrett, for pointing that out. On Triangle, the last episode I covered with the troll, Roberta Lip commented on the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page about the whole episode and humor, and I think she captured in a nutshell the problem with the humor in Triangle. Roberta said, this episode was a mess, theirs, not yours. I think you were being too generous about the humor failing. I just watched Parks and Recreation, and that type of humor, it's broad and it's nonsensical and while it's not my favorite it works because they commit to it so intently now here's the part where i said she captures it in a nutshell Buffy is a character-driven show first and foremost. The humor didn't land because it didn't make sense, and our brains are confused. And if you're trying to figure something out, you can't laugh. And Roberta, I love that line, and you're absolutely right. She also added, maybe it's my own pathology, but my favorite of your podcast episodes are the ones where you break down why an episode doesn't work. Those are the most fun for me as well and where I feel like I learn the most. When Buffy is amazing as it almost always is, yes, I learn from these examples. But when it doesn't work, that's where I see things that sometimes I do in my own work and see why that's a problem. I am a little less comfortable doing that with humor than with plot structure because so much of my fiction and nonfiction focuses on how to structure a plot, a little bit less so, but some on character development, but I haven't really dived into humor. However, the point you make about the character basis really hits home with me, and it got me thinking about two things, how much I'd love to do a Marvelous Mrs. Maisel podcast, and obviously there's lots of humor there, and maybe I would delve into and learn more about humor and Also, the fact that there are humor episodes of Buffy that really do land with me, such as Band Candy. So that's what gave me the idea to do a bonus episode comparing the humor in Band Candy with Triangle. Thank you, Roberta, for the comment and the inspiration.
At 34 minutes, 37 seconds in, Willow, Tara, Anya, and Xander sit in the book loft in the magic box. They're looking down on Quentin and the other watchers with Giles. Quentin comments about Buffy being 20 minutes late. Buffy is right outside the magic shop, but before she can reach it, someone or some demon in chainmail attacks her. As she fights, two more join. All of them are twirling staffs and have swords, and Buffy says, uh, guys, any way we could not do this? And that is in the script, the end of Act 3, and we cut to the commercial. So notice how short Act 3 was. It started around 28 minutes and ended at 35 minutes, and this is a four-act story. So that is very short. Act 4 begins. Buffy fights the three in the alley. She is bare-handed, yet she prevails despite their weapons, which I think helps give her back some of her confidence. And on some level, she must feel how well she is doing when no one is actively undermining her and she's following her instincts. She also uses a lot of the moves that Quentin was telling her to use, but she is the one powering it. When she's down to the last attacker, she pins him on his back and takes off the chain male mask and sees he's human. He tells her he's part of a vast army, the Knights of Byzantium, and they are her enemy. She assumes they work for glory, but he's appalled she would think they work for the beast. He also tells her if it takes a hundred men, they'll send a hundred. If it takes a thousand, they'll send a thousand. She can kill him, but more will follow, and they will go after her so long as she protects the key. Buffy lets him stand as she holds him at sword point. She puts it under his chin, and he's ready for her to cut his throat, but she tells him to go. She looks after him, holding the sword, clearly reaching an internal conclusion or realization. This also made me think about the symbolism of swords in Buffy. Back in season two, Buffy fought Angel and he got the sword away from her. And there was that definitive moment when he says, what do you have? Thrust the sword at her. She claps her hands to stop it and says, me. Not sure if that was a deliberate callback, but it is a very strong one either way. At 37 minutes, 57 seconds in, Buffy enters the store holding the sword and she moves slowly and deliberately toward Quentin, who says, you're late. And Buffy says, yeah. The way Buffy moves reminded me of a short seminar I took as a young lawyer, and it was about how to project power and authority. And it was aimed at young women lawyers. I don't remember. I'm sure men could attend as well. The presenter talked about how women tended more towards certain behaviors and ways of speaking that are not in our culture thought of as authoritative. And one of them was speaking quickly, speaking fast, conveys the idea that you are rushing your words because you don't think people will listen to you, and moving quickly, coming into a meeting and rushing to your seat. And she showed an example of the rush in the room versus what she called the president entering a room, which was slowly and deliberately. And she said, this conveys power. 
And I was so struck by Buffy moving deliberately in an episode that has so many linguistic ways that the mostly male watchers undermine Buffy and our other friends. Quentin starts talking about the review. Buffy lays the shiny sword on the table and tells him there won't be a review. We're now coming to the climax of the episode. That's where the opposing forces have their last confrontation and resolve the conflict. It's hard to say exactly where it starts here, and that is in large part a function of this not really being an action storyline. This whole storyline is about Buffy's internal growth to discovering that she has power, to recognizing what the Watcher's Council is doing, and that it is deliberately trying to make her feel small to manipulate her. Buffy says, no review, no interrogation, no questions you know I can't answer, no hoops, no jumps. And behind her, Nigel almost starts to speak, and she says, no interruptions. She turns and paces slowly as she talks and deliberately and says she's had a lot of people talking at her lately, and she's finally figured out why. And now she states the theme of the episode. Power. I have it they don't. This bothers them. She goes on to tell them about Glory stopping by at her house just to talk because Glory needs something from Buffy. And Buffy says, quote, because I have power over her, end quote. And she goes on, you guys didn't come all the way from England to determine if I was good enough to be let back in. You came to beg me to let you back in, to give your jobs, yourselves, some semblance of meaning. Nigel says, this is beyond insolence. And Buffy flings the sword and it sticks in the wall an inch from his face. He shuts up and Buffy says, I'm fairly certain I said no interruptions. She keeps talking, pointing out that they are watchers, and without a slayer, they have nothing to watch. They can't stop Glory. They can't do anything with their information. They need Buffy. And she tells them how it's going to work. They'll tell her all they know and leave. They'll contact her if they get more information. The magic shop will stay open. Giles will be restored as her official watcher. Giles coughs the word retroactive, and Buffy says to be paid retroactive from when he was fired. Buffy will keep working with the help of her friends. Now, Lydia says she doesn't want a sword thrown at her, but these are children. And Buffy says they are two very powerful witches and a thousand-year-old ex-demon. And Anya says, Will is a demon? One of the other male watchers asks, what about the boy? He has no special skills, but Buffy tells him the boy clocked more field time than all of the watchers together. She goes on that the watchers may all be very good at their jobs, but they won't know unless they work with her. They can take their time to think about it, but she wants an answer right now from Quentin, and she turns to him and says, because I think he's understanding me. At 42 minutes in, Quentin says, your terms are acceptable, and everybody cheers. 
We're now at the falling action. That's where the story ties up loose ends, resolves any subplots, and sometimes moves season arcs along. The falling action is very short. We don't have much time left, and it starts when the gang cheers. Quentin comments that he noticed Giles had a bottle of scotch. Giles stutters. He's still feeling a bit like he's under review, but Quentin clarifies that he would like a drink. Buffy, though, says not yet. First, she wants to know what kind of demon she's fighting. What is glory? And Quentin says, well, that's the thing you see. Glory isn't a demon. And Buffy says, what is she? And Quentin says, she's a god. And Buffy says, oh, and we cut to credits. That is it for the breakdown of the episode other than foreshadowing. If you found the discussion of plot points and turns helpful, and want to try it for your own fiction, you can download free story structure worksheets. Go to writingasasecondcareer.com slash story or look under that menu item help with your novel. If you're not staying for foreshadowing and spoilers, though I hope you do, thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for the next episode, Blood Ties, where Buffy has a birthday party and Dawn learns the truth about herself. And we are back for foreshadowing and spoilers. Triangle was episode 11 and Checkpoint is episode 12 in a 22 season arc. So both are roughly at the midpoint of the season. Triangle doesn't do a lot to move the season arc, but Checkpoint does. One major way is what I already mentioned with Spike. He goes from taunting and undermining Buffy and insisting he only helps for pay to protecting Dawn and Joyce because Buffy needs him to do it and Buffy trusts him. We don't know how far she can trust him yet but it's clear how deep his feelings run and this will drive much of the rest of the season as a strong midpoint should. In a way this is Buffy making a commitment and throwing caution to the wind. She left her mom and Dawn with Spike and Spike will go on still to do some terrible things when Drew comes back in town in a few episodes. Nonetheless, he does not hurt Buffy and he later protects Dawn at the risk of Glory killing him. The repercussions of Buffy trusting Spike reverberate all the way through season six and seven. So this is such a key episode for the series as a whole. This episode also sets up Glory believing that Buffy knows about the key. That is a major reversal for Buffy. Yes, she knew she had to protect Dawn and she killed that Sobek demon so that Glory would not learn about Dawn, but we didn't see Glory specifically thinking that Buffy was the one who was the key to her key, so to speak. And this has a huge effect on the rest of the season. In the next episode, Dawn will discover that she is the key and she'll inadvertently reveal it to Ben, upping the stakes, causing all kinds of 
issues and Ben will ultimately betray her at the end of the season. So this episode does drive the season five story forward with that reversal for Buffy. Some smaller foreshadowings, Dawn listening on the stairwell nicely sets up her ongoing curiosity about what is it that no one wants her to know. That will prompt her in the next episode to go to the magic shop and break in. And that's another example of Spike protecting her, not to win points with Buffy, who is angry with him about it, but because he cares about Buffy and he cares about Dawn. Buffy's realization about the council, the fact that she has the power and they are trying to undermine her, also is something of a midpoint commitment for Buffy, or at least a turn. To this point, she's felt overwhelmed because Glory is so much stronger and more powerful than her. She's also felt powerless in the face of Joyce's brain tumor. So Buffy now is more aware of her own power, not just physical fighting, but in her ability to outwit her opponents, to think through their strategy, and to use the power she has. Of course, all of this makes it that much more devastating when Joyce dies and when Glory takes Dawn. It makes it that much more overwhelming for Buffy. Finally, the theme of power will return in season seven with some of the same language. Buffy is talking to Dawn about who has the power. I believe that is the first line in season seven, or it's very close. And she teaches Dawn and later the potential slayers that just having a stake does not give you power. And then she will end the season and the series by sharing her power with the potential slayers. So that is very nicely set up here at that midpoint of season five. There are many more things this episode does, but I am already running a bit long, so I will save them for another time. Thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for Blood Ties, where Dawn discovers she's the key and Willow manages to hurt Glory at great cost to herself. You can listen to back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash buffystory or lisalilly.com slash YouTube. You can also comment on the episodes, share them, or connect with me on Instagram or Twitter at Lisa M. Lilly. That's L-I-S-A-M is in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y, or by visiting the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page. And you can find book editions of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash buffybooks. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Thank you.